We did a pilot program with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department, where we found 38 individuals at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, put them on a low-carb paleo diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best as we could. But based off the changes in these folks' blood work and their physical parameters, the pilot study alone, which lasted two years, is estimated to have saved the city of Reno $22 million with a 33 to 1 return on investment. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hi, guys. Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. Today, we sit down with Rob Wolf. Rob is the author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. I remember picking up The Paleo Solution in 2010 at the airport and totally revolutionized the way I look at food and how I eat. Today, we sit down and talk about the ketogenic diet and his keto masterclass, the effects of the ketogenic diet on people who've had brain injury and brain trauma, what's really happening when people feel the keto flu and how women potentially for biological reasons can adapt to the ketogenic diet better than most people understand. Rob is super, super smart. And one thing I love about him is he's always evolving and super easy and accessible and really breaks it down into simple tips and tricks. Let us know what you think. Go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about this episode. Rob Wolf, welcome to Muscle Medicine. I'm so excited to have you on. Hey, huge honor to be here. Thanks. You are, if I if I read right, you're self-proclaimed contrarian. I don't know. I guess if I am, I should argue with that point, possibly, <laughs> which might be redundant. I was doing a little research and I heard that on the podcast. Can you share your story with us about your journey of being really sick to discovering paleo to really your first foray into paleo was really a ketogenic diet? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've always been interested in health and performance. Both of my parents, unfortunately, were pretty ill. They had uh, some pretty bad lifestyle habits, smoking, maybe a little bit too much drinking, not enough exercise. And uh, I just didn't really like what that ultimate outcome looked like. I ended up doing diabetic wound care on my dad as he lost first a toe and then part of his foot, all of his foot, ultimately below the knee amputation. And, you know, I just had this sneaky suspicion that eating differently could probably avoid a lot of those problems. And, you know, I played around with everything you could imagine. And when I was in my mid-20s, the kind of high-carb, low-fat, vegan idea was really gaining a ton of momentum. And I, I think that that approach can work for some people. But for me, it was just a disaster. Like, I had terrible blood sugar swings. I developed a, a host of gut and kind of autoimmune-related issues. One of my primary diagnoses was uh, ulcerative colitis. I usually walk around about 170, 175 pounds. I was a former California state powerlifting champion, so I, I carry a decent amount of muscle. And at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I had malabsorption so bad that I was down to about 130 pounds. And I mean, I was eating everything that wasn't nailed down that fit within this kind of 
you know, vegan template, but it, it just, for me, it really wasn't working. And through kind of an interesting set of circumstances, this idea of ancestral eating or a paleo type diet got on my radar. And it was right around that time that I actually picked up a, a low carb book, an Atkins book, and read about that. And it was fascinating because as maligned and misunderstood as that guy is, he, he talked at length about how a whole variety of gut-related issues tended to resolve on this low-carb way of eating. And so I was in a pretty desperate spot, so I didn't really have anything to lose. And so I gave a basic Atkins protocol a shot and just felt better immediately, really in a lot of ways felt better than I had felt my whole life. Like my whole childhood, I kind of felt like my head was stuffed with cotton and like the world was happening somewhere out beyond me. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really like interfacing with it. And ever since kind of understanding this blood glucose control issue, I think I've got both some genetic and epigenetic things that, that set me up for not great success when I, I just did some recent genetic testing. And it basically suggested that my carb tolerance was such that I should look at carbs. And that's about it. And <laughs> And additional to that, I was on a host of antibiotics through my youth for acne and some other problems. Like between the age of 13 and 21, I think I was pretty well continuously on some type of acne-related antibiotic, which now I understand was mainly driven by dairy, unfortunately. Like I, even to this day, if I want to look like a pimply 17-year-old kid, I just eat a couple of pieces of cheese and I've got got some pimples within a couple of days, but you know, it was this whole host of things that came together at that time. This was around 1998. And I reached out to Lauren Cordain, who's the kind of modern, you know, integrator of this paleo diet concept and ended up doing a research fellowship with him. And then I guess another interesting little bit of backstory is uh, around 2001, I found this kind of wacky workout online called CrossFit, and I started following that and interfacing with the founders of CrossFit, and I eventually co-owned, co-opened the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world, and not just down the street, but like on the whole planet. And so I was involved with the CrossFit scene for a number of years, and it was really an interesting opportunity to kind of field test these ideas around ancestral health and moderate or low carb diets and how that affected performance health and longevity. So that's definitely a very 30,000 foot level, you know, I, I guess Rob's backstory. Nice. What was, I'm curious, what was the genetic testing that you did that kind of point to some intolerances? Yeah. So it was just the standard 23andMe. And then I put that through an analyzer via DNA fit. And this is a UK-based outfit, and they they really look at like some amylase gene frequency and some other kind of characteristics, and they've correlated this over time with doing some various correlation studies between, say, like insulin sensitivity and different uh, genetic profiles. But it, it, within this spectrum, and, and this stuff is it's, it's not perfect science by any means. But I have tinkered over the course of time. I've really tried to make higher carb intake work. And I just feel terrible. I get right on a carb roller coaster. I don't really have good blood sugar control. Um, when I eat on that lower carb side of things, I, I just feel much better. But when you get that DNA fit 
result, it, it, it tells you whether you're fast twitch or slow twitch and, and, you know, whether you have a higher preponderance for being an endurance versus a power athlete and stuff like that. But on my carbs tolerance, it was a big spectrum. And on one hand, you had people that were very tolerant and you could, in theory, eat a decent amount of carbs and be just fine. And then on the other side of the spectrum was very intolerant and you should really limit the amount of carbohydrates you consume. And I was just pegged out on the intolerant side. And, you know, we all love confirmation bias and <laughs> whether it's real or, or fake, like that definitely confirmed what I've, I've noticed over the last 20 years of experimenting with kind of keto and low carb diets, that that's definitely where I'm the leanest. I have the best cognition. My performance tends to be the best. And it, it you know, just generally I, I feel much better than when my carbs start drifting up much, much above about 100 grams a day, I, I started having a little bit of blood sugar regulation issues. You have this online course called the Keto Masterclass, and I dove into it over the weekend. And it is so user-friendly, it's accessible, it's this beautiful layout. There's bonuses in every module, which are so cool, the mindset, and sleep, and remembering your why. What makes uh, the Keto Masterclass different from other keto guides? Because I feel like with the ketogenic diet being so popular right now, it's, there's so much information and I feel like people can get really confused and bogged down with what's out there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. So we have tended to be, but I say we, my wife and I, because she's been on this journey with me virtually from the, the beginning of all this, but we've tended to be really, really early with things. Like we were right at the beginning of CrossFit when I first discovered the paleo diet concept. There were literally maybe about 300 people on the planet that knew what a paleo diet was. Because uh, again, this was like 1998, 1997. So we've been really early on a lot of stuff. And it, it's been interesting. Like I published my first book, The Paleo Solution, which I, I feel like was a solid book. I, I still, you know, I'm kind of impressed with what, what came out of it. But a number of people produced books subsequent to mine, and they were able to look at what the challenges were, the, the, the blind spots that I had. Because, you know, I was running a gym, I was traveling around the world giving seminars on this, this concept. And so I had some pretty darn good stuff in there, but there were still places that people were falling down and failing. And so a number of people were able to come after me look at this paleo diet concept and then generate some material, either books or guides or courses or what have you that address the shortcomings of my initial work. And so within this ketogenic diet space, I spent a year, two years kind of watching and cataloging where are people failing? What are the, the pain points? What are the difficulties? And we actually got in and surveyed a bunch of the folks that follow me and just asked them, you know, if you follow kind of a low carb or ketogenic diet, where are the difficulties? Where, what are the challenges? And people ended up falling into certain kind of categories. And so I was really able to take a, a good amount of time. Like I, I researched where folks were, were kind of failing within this ketogenic diet space. And to your point, you know, again, it, it ranged from mindset to preparation to feeling time crunch, social pressures. I mean, there were a ton of different areas where people would would ultimately fail and kind of peel out. And so I was able to really take my time. And then I put probably as much, if not more work into making the keto masterclass as I would for like a, you know, 400 page published hardback book. And so 
I guess the elements of it that were really different is I really specifically went after not, not just what is the ketogenic diet and kind of how to do it, but are you even a good fit for the ketogenic diet? Like most of these things never even pin people down and say, who are you and what are your goals? Like maybe a ketogenic diet isn't where you want to go. You know, they, they just assume that there's this one size fits all approach and they just kind of jam it out. And so instead of taking that approach, it was a really nuanced program. It's kind of like a triage process. Like I kind of imagine it like some of the games at like state fairs where you drop a marble and it starts going through like a, a maze and it's like a left, right logic tree. You know, you go here, you go there. And so with this thing at the very beginning, I asked folks this question, who are you and what do you want to do? And based off those, those two points of information, if we know who you are and what you want to do, where you want to go, we now have a map. Basically, we have a, an ability to retro engineer, taking you from where you are to where you want to go. And that's going to be a little bit different for every single person. And with a little bit of kind of a logic and sorting process, we're able to address just about every need that has popped up. And again, I, I think we're really successful because I just spent a lot of time cataloging everybody that was failing, everybody that was falling down, all the questions that I I personally received, but also that, you know, I would see on YouTube comments and Facebook comments and whatnot. And so this, you know, it's pretty comprehensive. The Keto Masterclass, it helps people figure out where they are, where they want to go. And it really provides a self-assessment process. So if you hit a dead end and you're not making progress, you, you always have a guide to go back to to say, okay, here's where I am. Am I addressing electrolytes? Am I addressing sleep? Did I weigh and measure my macros? Am I eating enough protein? You know, and, and so it will work you through a checklist that you can say, oh, okay, there's where I'm probably falling down. And I think that that's where, you know, we've, the, uh, the results that we've been getting and kind of the testimonials have really been kind of jaw dropping, but it's just a really systematic process. It allows people to tackle this in little bite-sized pieces. And so it, it's been very effective. Nice. Do most people come into a ketogenic for weight loss to beat brain fog? I mean, those are the first two reasons I think of. Mm -hmm. From surveying people, what else have people come into the ketogenic diet looking for? I would say 90% of people are motivated by like aesthetics and fat loss. And there, there's just kind of a, a reality that very few people are motivated on primary Per, you know, their primary purpose is not health driven. And that's just kind of a reality. But the blood sugar regulation, autoimmune conditions, neurodegenerative issues, whether, you know, people maybe have uh, done some genetic testing and they discover there may be an APOE4 carrier, which interestingly predisposes them to both higher likelihood of cardiovascular disease, but also higher likelihood of various neurodegenerative diseases. And although there's a fair amount of controversy around whether or not a ketogenic diet would ultimately be healthier beneficial from the cardiovascular function, I would argue that it absolutely is or can be if you put it together properly. It's without a doubt, like if there's one area that a ketogenic diet shines, it's in neurological issues, like ranging from traumatic brain injury, epilepsy, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, various types of dementia. Like if there really is one spot that we have super well established that is very effective is within neurological conditions. And so 
you know, I would say maybe 10% of folks enter into a ketogenic program either for a specific health concern or because maybe there's some testing or some family history has led them to believe that they're, they're at a particularly high risk for type 2 diabetes or say like a, a neurological condition. But definitely the vast majority of people enter into ketogenic diet, just like virtually all diets for weight loss and kind of aesthetic goals. But then what they discover along the time is, oh man, I had allergies that I never really noticed. I had a host of like gastrointestinal problems that I just assumed were normal and always going to be part of my life. And so usually in that weight loss process, people discover that they had a host of health issues that end up resolving along the way. You're currently doing, I think I saw some studies of your current work with people who have had multiple concussions, head trauma. What are you finding with those people when they're on a keto diet? One thing, and I, I have a couple of podcasts where I've interviewed both TBI survivors and also some TBI researchers. And the, the first thing is that it's a really multifactorial, highly complex problem. And I've mainly worked with men because the, the bulk of my, my work has been with folks in or around the military. I was a consultant for Naval Special Warfare. So I honestly haven't had a lot of experience with women. And so I don't know if their endocrine function alters in a similar process. But within these men, we see hypogonadism in these men. We see dramatically suppressed growth hormone secretion. Their circadian biology is completely deranged. Like they don't know when to wake or when to sleep. So these hormonal issues alone can cause all kinds of behavioral and personality changes. But then I think also just baked into the cake with the, you know, the TBI, you get some behavioral and personality changes. And, and the unfortunate thing is it's kind of a, it's a feed forward downward spiral. When your sleep gets disordered, then your hormones get more dysregulated. As your hormones get more dysregulated, then you get more inflammation in the brain. With more inflammation in the brain, then you have increasing severity of the, the TBI symptoms. And it's kind of crazy for folks in and around the military or a variety of occupations. Things as, as seemingly benign as like initiating your parachute and decelerating rapidly causes a mild TBI. Riding one of these Zodiac boats, the inflatable boats, over even mildly choppy water, if you're zipping along at a pretty good pace, like you're just kind of bouncing along, that causes a mild TBI. A 1G, a 1 gravity a change on a roller coaster can cause a mild TBI in most folks. And so it doesn't actually take a lot to cause a little bit of this TBI issue in folks. But then if you layer on a disordered sleep because of like night operations and deployment schedules that keep people awake all night and they sleep during the day, then that is a pro-inflammatory state. The food that we're feeding people is a highly pro-inflammatory process. So it ends up being this kind of perfect storm in the, the ketogenic diet I know that's like super long drawn out answer, but, it, you know, the ketogenic diet definitely is incredibly powerful in providing an alternate brain fuel, specifically uh, beta hydroxybutyrate for the brain. And it's also really interesting in that the, the state of ketosis, whether that's fasting or a ketogenic diet, it downregulates this thing called the inflammasome. So it, it's this total package of inflammation within the body that involves the immune cells and cytokines and prostaglandins, leukotrienes, all these things that feed into the, uh, the inflammatory process. 
on a global level are down-regulated within the ketogenic state. So it's really powerful for helping to address the need for a starving brain to, to get nutrients. Uh, something that I, I maybe forgot to mention is in that traumatic brain injury state, the brain becomes very insulin resistant. And so if the only fuel available is glucose, the brain actually starves and the neurons die due to a, a lack of enough energy. And so this is one of the things that either a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones can be really, really beneficial in a situation like that. But then also we need some things like cognitive behavioral therapy. Most likely we need a very smart and nuanced approach to hormone replacement therapy. Like you can't just like slap a testosterone patch on a guy and call it good. Like there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And a good friend of mine, Dr. Kirk Parsley, is a retired SEAL. He became a physician and ran a lot of the medical concerns for the West Coast SEALs. And I've learned a ton from him, but I literally know about 5% of what he knows. And, and I'm going to sound kind of arrogant here, but I probably know 90% more about effective hormone replacement as it pertains to this kind of like TBI space than like 95% of the doctors and endocrinologists that I've met. Like they just, they tackle this in a very ham-handed fashion and there's a lot that can be done before even putting people on testosterone, but there, there's something that absolutely needs to be done. Like you have to support those uh, various hormonal axes. Usually what happens, these folks get injured or they start manifesting all kinds of uh, uh, clinical symptoms. They send them back east to this outfit called NICO, which is a really amazing facility for kind of documenting the health situation for the individual, particularly around this traumatic brain injury event. But then they send them home with like a bag full of antidepressants and Viagra and like they send them back with a bunch of things trying to address the symptoms instead of addressing the root cause. And that's really the unfortunate state right now is that then most of these guys need to go out and find practitioners on their own uh, to try to bridge the gap between what uh, you know, the kind of military assessment at NICO discovers and what they actually need to be able to get better. Oh, interesting. So I just treated someone today with head trauma and he has a really difficult time getting more than three hours of sleep a night, chronically sleep deprived. And uh, I, I, we see a lot of patients in the clinic who are kind of dappling in keto in the ketogenic diet. And what do you recommend to make sure that the keto diet is still anti-inflammatory? Because I know a lot of people sometimes like to pound the sour cream or the heavy cream or maybe something that might cause some gut inflammation or they might have a tolerance to it. Yeah, I mean, that that's... <sighs> That gets a little bit tough and a little bit nuanced. So like for myself, I don't do well with cow dairy in general, like particularly cheese and milk, but whole cream I'm okay with, butter I'm okay with. I am though, interestingly, in, in some of the genetic testing. So when we think about whether somebody is poorly or well-suited to be like fat adapted or, or keto adapted, there's a bunch of different considerations. And at the very front end of this process, or at least the way that I think about it on the front end, is kind of how your body reacts to different fatty acid types. And interestingly, I am one of these folks that doesn't do well with huge amounts of saturated fat in the diet. I start seeing an uptick in 
lipoproteins and total cholesterol, which is probably not not the best uh, situation, even while being ketogenic and low insulin levels. And really, all I need to do is shift towards more nuts and olive oil, kind of monounsaturated fats. And then like I can, like a marionette, like I can pull those numbers up and down based off of uh, whether I'm doing more monounsaturated fat versus saturated fat. But then beyond that, I'm super well equipped for being ketogenic in that I seem to express the kind of fat mobilizing enzymes, the cofactors that go into fat metabolism. I tend to handle carnitine well, which is a, uh, an amino acid that helps to shuttle fats into the mitochondria. So on the front end, I do have a little bit of a concern that like, I do need to, to keep an eye on the type of fat that I consume. But then on the back end, like so long as I'm addressing that, I'm pretty good to go. But then to your point, I think you alluded to this, different people have various food intolerances. Like I'm, I'm super reactive to gluten, pretty reactive to dairy, I'm trying to think of what other things like some fruits, like more like apples and pears, like uh, most people who have celiac, which I have also have fructose malabsorption issues. And uh, uh, definitely like if I have an apple or maybe half an apple, I'm probably okay. If I try to have three apples, like I'm going to be so gassy and bloated, it's just going to be an absolute disaster. And so there are some kind of food malabsorption issues around there. But, you know, just a little bit of self-experimentation, like how's your digestion? What's your cognitive function like? Like generally, if we, and, and this isn't an across the board thing, sometimes we will see like an an elevation in lipoproteins without people feeling particularly bad. But uh, I, I know in your email to me, you're asking about some testing. The thing that we really rely on in our clinic, uh, especially health here in Reno, Nevada, we use this thing called an LPIR score, a lipoprotein insulin resistance score. And what is used in calculating that is looking at the LDLP, the LDL particle count, as one piece. And most people, when they get standard blood work, they'll get their HDL cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol, total cholesterol, triglycerides, blood glucose. The cholesterol doesn't really tell us what's really going on. What we really need to know is how many of the particles that carry cholesterol around are active. It, and that really does give us a, a good picture of what's happening. Every Single day, about 40% of the people that have a heart attack or a stroke due to occlusion of the, the arteries, they have low to normal cholesterol levels. But typically, if we look at them, they're insulin resistant and they have high lipoprotein counts and high inflammation, but this is completely missed under standard blood work. And then instead of looking at C-reactive protein, which is really, really labile, like it can change literally minute to minute we look at a marker called Glyc-A, G-L-Y-C-A, and this is a stable marker of inflammation. It will go up or down with infection, but it's not as misleading as what C-reactive protein is. And it's really interesting. Like if somebody has nothing else going on other than they are accumulating body weight, we will see glyca increase because that increased visceral adiposity in particular tends to increase inflammatory signaling. So this LPIR score, which includes the LDLP and glyca, and they're lo looking at including some other markers, that's really what we hang our hat on. And folks can get that through specialty health or if you 
go through LabCorp, you can get that stuff ordered through LabCorp. The, the cool thing about going through specialty health is you actually get a nice written report and a human being actually writes up an interpretation on it instead of like, here are your results, go figure it out on your, your own. Do you have to ask your doctor for those tests? It depends on how you're tackling it. Like you would need to go through, say, like specialty health if you wanted to ping them and work with them on their their wellness program. You might be able to get it through like life extension or something like that. Like there are some outfits where you can order various types of tests. I know like Inside Tracker does some stuff, but they work with Quest and not LabCorn. So they do like the ApoB test instead of the LDLP, which is, is good, but I don't think it's nearly as comprehensive and it does not give you that stable inflammatory marker baseline that you get from Glyca. So it kind of depends, but I, I think that there might be some routes where people could just get the tests ordered directly, like through life extension or again, going through specialty health. Is there any population that you would not recommend a ketogenic diet for? And I think of all the New Yorkers who are burning the candle at both ends and not getting enough sleep. Like, are there certain populations that you target in your masterclass where you're like, you know what? A ketogenic diet might not be right for you. On one level, there are some genetically predisposed people that a ketogenic diet isn't going to be a good fit. Like there are some folks, typically they're from very high northern Inuit or even like a Siberian native heritage. And interestingly, even though they've eaten historically what you would think would be a ketogenic diet, like they live right at the Arctic Circle, the vast majority of the year they have like seal, caribou, elk, that's it, you know. But interestingly, these folks typically do not enter a ketogenic state. They actually have become more efficient at metabolizing a protein at a higher level and also directly utilizing fats as an energy source. So there are some people that just genetically, they're not going to be well suited to a ketogenic diet. And also people kind of forget in this, this whole thing, like it's become a binary yes or no deal. You're either ketotic or not. People forget this whole spectrum of just kind of low carb, like somewhere between like 50 and 150 grams a day. Like you're not necessarily going to be in ketosis or maybe not in ketosis all the time. You might be in ketosis during an overnight fast, but there's a huge spectrum there. So, you, you know, even if a specifically like ketogenic diet isn't the perfect fit for you, maybe just kind of a moderate carb kind of paleo whole food diet is going to be a good fit. So people really throw the baby out with the bathwater when they, they approach this stuff or they make it an all or nothing thing. They either need to be ketotic or eating, you know, like uh, baked potatoes and, and chips at every, every meal. But highly glycolytic people like CrossFitters, mixed martial arts competitors, soccer players, I think it's going to be hard to properly fuel for those events in a, a you know, like a purely ketogenic state. There is a, a way of using what's called a targeted ketogenic diet where you'll take in 10, 20, 30 grams of glucose specifically, like it could be a maltodextrin or even just a glucose tablets immediately before a training session. So you would otherwise eat a pretty standard kind of ketogenic diet, you know, 30 to 50 grams of, of carbs a day. And then right before a, a training bout or an event, you would throw some, some carbs into the mix and then you might consume like a MCT to carbohydrate, maybe about depending on your size and activity level, man, you might consume like 
15 to 20 grams of MCT powder form per hour plus 10, 15 grams of, of uh, carbohydrate, mainly in the form of glucose per hour. But again, this will depend on, on the, you know, the size of the individual and the intensity of the activity that folks do. Uh, we've seen a lot of success in things like triathlon, ultra marathons and whatnot. And it, although those things are really demanding, they're not the same energy demand, like full body, all at once energy demand as something like CrossFit or obstacle course racing and stuff like that. Like for the, for those folks, I tend to recommend more like during the off season when your, your training volume is maybe focused on that aerobic base phase and stuff, then maybe we do more of a, a classic kind of ketogenic diet to kind of ramp up the, the fat mobilizing enzymes and whatnot. But then as you get closer to your performance period, your, your competition period, we might just figure out kind of a moderate carb intake that might be 200 grams a day, which sounds like a lot for people in keto land. But when you think about a lot of the obs these obstacle course racers reading like 800, 1,000 grams of carbs a day to, to fuel their activity, like for an individual that both wants to be active in an event like CrossFit or obstacle course, and they maybe have some genetics like mine where they just don't handle carbs that well. You have to find a middle ground there where you do need to figure out how to fuel that glycogen dependent activity. But at the same time, we don't want to overwhelm your individual ability to just handle carbohydrate. Right. Does your training change? Because I know you used to do a lot of powerlifting, um, CrossFit, and I think you're doing more jujitsu now. Has that training changed due to how you're eating? Or is that just like, I'm interested now a little bit more than before. And you know, definitely the dog is my activity and the tail is the food, to be honest. Like the you know, it's not the tail wagging the dog. But it's interesting how that has played out. So my main deal is kind of old guy Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm a purple belt now. I'm kind of kind of getting in theory close to my brown belt and um I'm 46 years old. It's interesting though, and this is where it's been cool doing jujitsu. Because I am largely keto fueled, I don't do a soup like I'm not interested in competing like the five minute all out efforts are not really that interesting to me, at least not right now. Like I might do that at, at some point, but I just enjoy jujitsu like it's a great outlet. And I, I just make so many decisions throughout the course of a day and do so much thinking. And even though you think in jujitsu, like it's one of the rare things that I do that I just get into a flow state and I enjoy myself and it's fun and I really love the community that I'm a part of. But the the type of jujitsu game that I've been cultivating is a really relaxed, not super scrambly. It's kind of weight emphasized. It's very defense oriented. And so I just don't burn a lot of energy doing jujitsu. Like at this point, I actually do two cardio sessions a week to maintain my cardio in general because I've gotten so lazy and so efficient at doing jujitsu that I don't really get that much of like a cardiovascular training stimulus from it. But that's actually a beautiful fit for uh, kind of keto fueling this stuff. And every once in a while, like if, if I show up at class and there's like, and this happens every once in a while, there's like four or five police officers that are like 26 years old, former collegiate wrestlers, they're 210 pounds. I'm like 160, 170 pounds. And uh, they've had a bad week. Then I go over and I grab a couple of glucose tabs and drop them because I know I'm going to I'm going to be in a fight for my life that day, you know, but I try I, I try not to do a ton of of rolling like that. And then I do some 
two days a week of combination of gymnastics and, and weight training type stuff to just try to maintain some power generation and honestly to kind of armor coat myself. Like this is my prehab and rehab and injury prevention. And, and also just to, you know, one of the main things that we lose with aging is muscle mass. And so I'm really trying to prevent that whole process. Absolutely. It sounds like your jujitsu practice is like this, what you would hear people say the flow state or the getting into the zone. I really try to get there. And so I try to grab partners that facilitate that process. Like if the person's just trying to kill you, then it's a lot harder to, to get there. And so I've been pretty selective about who I train with and, and have put a lot of effort into putting that together. But the funny thing, this is a really interesting thing is I'm making progress so fast. Like I'm making progress so much faster than the people that are killing themselves and relying on their attributes. And this is something that's interesting in a highly skill-based sport. So I'm still reasonably strong and, and reasonably fit, particularly for like my age cohort and all that stuff. But if I developed a jujitsu game that relied on all of my strength and all of my cardio at my current age, I would have to completely change my game by the time I'm 50. And then I would have to change it again when I'm 55. And I would have to change it again when I'm 60. And probably somewhere in that mix, I just quit because I'm so frustrated and I've had to relearn things a thousand times. Whereas doing this non-attribute game and really focusing on kind of the the fundamentals of jujitsu of being relaxed and again, focusing on that kind of defensive approach to things. Like I don't tap everybody out in the gym, but I've gotten to a spot where everybody in the gym has a devil of a time tapping me. Like they need to work their ass off to get me. And sometimes they're 70 pounds heavier and 15 years younger. And I'll, I'll, by the end of a 20-minute roll, like they maybe finally get me, but they, they are smoked at the end of that. And then if we continue rolling for an hour, that's where I start accumulating like my, my victories because they've got to work so hard and so explosively. So I've just focused on this very uh, efficient game. And again, I'm just purple belt. I'm not anything special, but for people thinking about doing this stuff or like if you've historically been doing jujitsu and you've been really relying on that, like, you know, maxed out attribute, all of your strength, all of your cardio, it's going to be a dead end street. And it, it also really sets you up for injury and, and you, you'll be, you'll be super frustrated when the, the things that you were able to do, you can no longer do them and you don't have a, another rabbit to pull out of your hat. You hear this a lot this idea of the keto flu when people start going into ketosis. Can you explain what's going on in the body when people start to experience these symptoms, like flu-like symptoms? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a terrible thing to experience. And so the thing that's really well understood is the keto flu. Something that's related but less well understood is I would say to the degree that we see some adrenal issues and some thyroid issues with the ketogenic diet, it's related to exactly the same thing and even some sleep issues. And it, it relates to the following. Under normal circumstances, normal being kind of in quotations, but when people are eating a more carb-centric diet, their insulin levels are higher. And we, when insulin is relatively high, we tend to produce a hormone called aldosterone which causes our, our kidneys to retain sodium. And when we retain sodium, we retain water. And this is one of the reasons why when people go on a low-carb diet, 
they lose weight initially and people will just dismiss it. And they're like, oh, I just lost water weight. But that water weight is also their high blood pressure and a lot of their like cardiovascular disease potential. So it's kind of funny when, when that gets dismissed, but when that blood volume starts to drop because our aldosterone levels drop and our sodium drops, the body is in a little bit of a weird state. It, it actually starts excreting both sodium and potassium in this kind of downward spiral. And this is where you can get muscle wasting. You can end up with uh, severe cramping. You can end up with some kind of uh, cardiac arrhythmia type, type stuff. Um, you can be very stimulated at night when you're trying to go to sleep because part of the process of releasing more aldosterone to retain that sodium and prevent this whole process, we also release epinephrine and other corticosteroids, uh, cortisol in, in particular. And so the body is kind of trying to hang on to sodium, but because of the low insulin levels, it's kind of hard to do. So what we need to do is really aggressively supplement with sodium. And it's good to supplement with a bit of potassium also and also some magnesium. But really, the linchpin is adding more sodium into the mix. And what, what's interesting and worth pointing out is that the ketogenic diet has been studied within the epilepsy community for over 100 years, at least 100 years now, maybe maybe longer than that. And what's well understood for these, these epileptic patients when they are eating this very low-carb diet is that they need additional sodium and, and pretty aggressive amounts of it to avoid some of these muscle wasting problems and these other issues. And so we don't see the sleep disturbance. We don't see the keto flu when people are under a medically managed ketogenic diet because they actually tick all those boxes. They actually make sure to, to get enough sodium. And, and the funny thing is I've, I've been in and around this scene for a long time and I would experience transient bouts of not really feeling that great while in a, a ketogenic state. And it was because I wasn't adding enough sodium into the mix. I have some very good friends, uh, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor. They're the founders of Keto Gains. And they were looking at kind of my food log and they're like, you're not getting enough sodium, man. I'm like, no, no, no. I salt my food. And I said, no, you're not getting enough. And so I, I literally make a salty Gatorade type thing three times a day, in particular before training. And that supplemental sodium will just completely halt this low carb flu. And also to the degree, again, that people are maybe complaining of like some adrenalized type issues or maybe some alterations in thyroid function. Absolutely believe that happens when people are on a ketogenic diet, but I would also argue that it's about 99% of the time due to not getting enough sodium. Interesting. So other than sodium, is there any other, you see a lot of people hit the wall after about three weeks where if their goal is weight loss, they are not losing the same kind of weight as they did beginning. Are there other mistakes or pitfalls that people hit that you see are common? Yeah. So overly relying on the scale is the is perhaps the primary pitfall. So again, people get that easy weight loss right in the beginning and it's mainly water. And again, there, there are really good, healthy, you know, consequences to that. But if we just go by the scale and, you know, like if in the first 10 days we lost 10% of our body weight and then, you know, it slows down to something that, you, you know, is much more reasonable, like, two pounds a week or something like that, depending on, on how big or small of a person we have, people will just get all freaked out and frustrated. And so 
what's interesting, and this is kind of an interesting comparison of there are right ways to do things, but it depends on what, what type of infrastructure you have. In the Keto Masterclass, we only recommend that people weigh once a month. You do an initial weighing and then you check in once a month. And it's because depending on how much sodium you retain that day or if you did or didn't have a bowel movement, like you could be up or down two to five pounds really easily. And people will just freak out over that. Now, again, my friends over at Keto Gains, Tyler and Luis, they ask their boot campers to weigh every single day. But the difference there is that within this boot camp, they have a coach interacting with them every day, multiple times a day via text interface. So they're able to talk these people off the ledge in real time, whereas within the Keto Masterclass, although we, we have a Facebook group for people to hang out and ask questions and everything, but we just don't have that like real-time feedback. And so what I found was much better is just asking people to weigh once a month. So if you're going to do the daily weighing, you either have to really wrap your head around the fact that there's going to be ups and downs, but the general trend is going to be downward unless we have a problem. And usually the problem is either electrolytes or people didn't calculate their macros properly. Um, or you, you do the keto gains approach where you have a very high touch scenario and you, you have someone knowledgeable who's talking you off the ledge when you start getting crazy about the fact that, you know, in week three, you're not losing the same way that you were in week one. Right. Do you see men respond to keto differently versus women? I mean, I know you've worked with my men in general, but I was you know, I, I'm asked this question a lot, and it, it, it's a really funny thing. So, again, like for a long time, I was trying to figure out how to keto fuel my jujitsu activities. And, and I had people asking about keto fueling, say, like CrossFit and stuff like that. And like at the earlier, I said that these things are legitimately generally difficult to fuel because of the glycogen demands of like CrossFit and, and jujitsu. But it's fascinating when I poked around the interwebs, and this is by no means a scientific thing, but I was just looking around and it's like, who is out there doing ketogenic diets and succeeding at jujitsu and succeeding at CrossFit? And the people I found doing that were women. And it, it, I wasn't seeing as many men uh, uh, succeeding at it. And so that was really interesting. Like at that outer bound in the areas where I wouldn't expect anyone to be particularly successful, the main people succeeding were in fact women. So it's tough because in theory, women in general are better at fat mobilization, fat me metabolism than men are. And there's genetic variances and there's a bell curve on it. And within that bell curve, you know, even within the gender spectrum, you will have women that are less you know, fat adapted than, than men are. But in general, if we're drawing these, these big picture kind of conclusions, women are generally more amenable to fat adaptation. Just during the, the period of pregnancy, women tend to become more insulin resistant, tend to shift into a little bit more of a ketogenic state. And this is smart in a lot of ways because ketone bodies are actually a fundamental building block for a neuronal tissue for the fetus. This provides a more stable blood glucose background, which is better for both the mom and the baby. So there's a ton of biological reasons why women arguably should be more fat adapted and it should actually go like a duck to water to a ketogenic diet. I think that there's almost some mythology out there where people are like, no, women are, are so different and, and they just don't adapt to it as well. I know men can on the surface maybe lose weight a little bit faster 
I think that a lot of women end up in some fairly complex hormonal situations, you know, like maybe an estrogen dominant situation. And if there's a paucity of doctors and endocrinologists that know how to deal with male hormonal dysfunction, uh, oh my God, it's an absolute wasteland with female hormonal dysfunction because female hormones are so much more complex. Are you still menstruating? Where are you at in your menstrual cycle? Are you perimenopausal? Are you postmenopausal? You know, like, holy smokes, it, it just gets way more complex. But I mean, I may be proven wrong at some point, and I'm totally willing to to keep my mind open to this, but at my stage right now, I don't really see there being this like massive failure rate within women other than I, I, I will say that there maybe tends to be a bit more emotional attachment around food for some women. Women oftentimes are much more in the caretaking role and uh, changing any dietary practice at all kind of paints a target on people like the, the only disordered eating according to you know like american medical association american dietetics association is good eating like if you show up at work or school or what have you and you've got a bag of chips and a coke nobody's gonna bat an eye but if you show up with like chicken breast and broccoli and avocado you're a you're a nut and it socially stigmatizes you. And I, I think that women maybe can be more impacted on that regard. But then the fascinating thing is 80% of the people following the masterclass, 75, 80% of the people following the Keto Gains boot camps are women between the age of 35 and 55. So even that notion around like women being more difficult for a variety of reasons, I don't know if I'm full of it on that. Like the main people doing keto are women. So I, I don't know. But I will say this, doing things wrong, like under eating protein, not getting the electrolytes correct, women will feel bad quicker and have more dire consequences to say like not addressing the electrolytes because if their cortisol goes up and their thyroid down regulates they're going to feel worse and feel worse faster than men will. But that wasn't a problem with the ketogenic diet. That was a problem with not getting the electrolytes correct. Right. You had touched on this a little bit before about talking about maintaining muscle mass, especially as you age. Have you found, I'm assuming you work with all different kinds of ages of people doing the ketogenic diet, that decade over decade where we require more protein just to maintain our muscle mass? Or have you... What have you found in like the older populations that are playing with the people? Man, I mean, there's there's not a ton out there yet, either, you know, both on the scientific side or anecdotal side. But even a modest level of ketone bodies are, are circulating are really interesting in that they are myostatin inhibitors. And so if people look up like myostatin knockout bull, you'll see this thing that's called a double muscle bull. And it, it just looks absolutely enormous. And interestingly, uh, a good number of the people that have won Olympic gold medals in Olympic weightlifting and some power-related sports, these people are myostatin knockouts. And so within biology, there's always a trade-off. And and on the one hand, it would seem like it would be great to grow huge amounts of muscle, but in an ancestral environment, that may not be a huge survival benefit because it takes a lot more food to fuel that individual. But these myostatin knockout individuals, the myostatin gene prevents accumulating excessive amounts of muscle mass. Like as you accumulate some muscle mass, then it tends to start 
ramping up the myostatin effect. And so it gets harder and harder to gain more and more. Anabolics can override this process to some degree, but there ends up being kind of a, an upper bound to this whole thing. But interestingly, the ketogenic diet modifies the expression of the myostatin gene. So it downregulates it, which should, in theory, be a, a really big benefit for maintaining muscle mass as we age. And then also, interestingly, it enhances the ketogenic state, enhances the signaling, the receptor site signaling for anabolic hormones, in particular testosterone. So, you know, there's a couple of different vectors there where you could make an argument that the ketogenic state is probably a very nicely anabolic state, certainly more so than an insulin resistant state. Like this is something to keep in mind. The insulin resistant individual is by definition in a wasting disease scenario. Now it's ironic because the individual is gaining body fat, but they are actively losing muscle mass in that insulin resistant type two diabetic kind of scenario. And again, it's not to say that you are either eating donuts or ketotic, but for a huge number of people, like that, either due to genetic factors or epigenetic factors, lifestyle issues, you know, like shift work or antibiotic exposure, or what have you, they maybe are just kind of set up such that they're going to be kind of insulin resistant. And so you really need to figure out how to manage that and exercise help, better sleep helps, but just modulating carbohydrate intake really, really helps that. Rob, we're going to wrap up here. I could talk to you literally all day with such a wealth of knowledge. Where can people find you? Most of my stuff is over at robwolf.com, R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F. I'm on Twitter, at robwolf. Instagram, I do a lot more over there, actually. It seems like Twitter has kind of died a little bit, and that's at dosrobwolf. I have a Facebook page, robwolf.com online. And I, I'm the guy answering all the questions, and I answer a ton of them. Like, this thing isn't a popularity contest for me. I actually enjoy helping people and interacting with people. And, and, you know, maybe circling back to the very beginning of the podcast, everything new that I learn is because of the questions that people ask me that make me say, huh, I'm not too sure about that. And it forces me to go out and do some research in a new area. And so that's where, unlike a lot of people in this scene where they, as quickly as they possibly can, they try to farm out and outsource the interaction with the people asking them questions like that literally is my primary job every day for two reasons. I really enjoy it. And also that's how I continue to learn new things. What's next? You know, uh, right now I have a really interesting project going on where I'm doing, I'm the head of the advisory board for the Chickasaw nation. And these folks are building a healthcare initiative built around the ancestral health model ketogenic and low-carb diets play very heavily in this scene, and we're trying to develop a process to really help their citizens to live healthier. If you do a little poking around, it, it just as a wrap-up, I'll, I'll curl people's toes a little bit, but if you do a little poking around and you look at healthcare spending, bankruptcy, congressional budget office, like all developed nations are facing within eight to 15 years, eight to 30 years, depending on how you run the numbers, they're, they're going to be bankrupted by their diabetes and healthcare related costs. And this is independent of aging. Aging, it should not be an expensive process in and of itself. The problem is our kind of diabetes epidemic and our bad food and all this stuff. And this is what, what makes me crazy when you have people out there 
kind of spouting this stuff. And although their science is accurate when they say it's all calories in, calories out, it, that's largely true. But when we consider our kind of modern world of hyper-processed foods and hyper-palatable foods where we have no off switch and it completely flies in the face of biology to not eat everything that's nailed down, there's a lot of people in the health and fitness industry that are doing absolutely nothing to avert this catastrophe. The Congressional Budget Office has a prediction that by like 2030, the U.S. will have generated 300% of its GDP in debt, largely due to healthcare-related costs. And nations don't survive that. Like societies collapse. And I know it sounds crazy. It's all like Mad Max, gloom and doom. But there are a few entities out there uh, like the Chickasaw Nation. Um, we've, we, we did a pilot program with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department, where we found 38 in, individuals at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, put them on a low-carb paleo diet, modified their sleep and exercise as best as we could. But based off the changes in these folks' blood work and their physical parameters, the pilot study alone, which lasted two years, is estimated to have saved the city of Reno $22 million with a 33-to-1 return on investment. So this ancestral health stuff really works, but the way the incentives are set up in the current healthcare model, nobody is incentivized currently to address these issues. And there are a few folks mainly that run these things called self-insured captives, which is a particular way of like managing the the way that the insurance is handled. These people are looking around for solutions because they're facing the real costs of healthcare. And the Chickasaw Nation is a, a very large self-insured captive and uh, nearly 70, I forget the exact number, 70 or 80% of their population is insulin resistant and or overweight. And then a remarkably large percentage of that is type 2 diabetic. And their healthcare costs are increasing at an exponential rate. And so they're as wealthy as they are due to all the, the business activities that they've done. They've got an eight to 15 year window before they will be bankrupt. They will be gone. And so this is the primary project I'm working on trying to develop the systems and align the incentives so that we can change that whole process. That's such important work. It's a pretty big deal. I keep looking around for somebody more qualified than myself to run this thing, but apparently I'm it. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Huge honor being on the show. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here. <laughs>